You are listening to the Hope Fellowship Church Podcast. To find more information about our church and ministries, check out our website at hopeandanderson.com. Now, this week's teaching. Hello, my name is Nicole Davidson, and I've been attending Hope for three years now. I serve with Hope Kids and Hope College. This morning, we will be reading scripture in Spanish, so please stand with me for today's reading. Our passage is Jonah 3, 1 through 10. La palabra del Señor vino por segunda vez a Jonás. Anda, ve a la gran ciudad de Nínive y proclámale el mensaje que te voy a dar. Jonás se fue hacia Nínive conforme al mandato del Señor. Ahora bien, Nínive era una ciudad grande y de mucha importancia. Jonás se fue internando en la ciudad y la recorrió todo un día mientras proclamaba. Dentro de cuarenta días, Nínive será destruida. Y los ninivitas le creyeron a Dios. Proclamaron ayuno y desde el mayor hasta el menor se vistieron de luto en señal de arrepentimiento. Cuando el rey de Nínive se enteró del mensaje, se levantó de su trono, se quitó su manto real, hizo duelo y se cubrió de ceniza. Luego mandó que se pregonara en Nínive. Por decreto del rey y de su corte, ninguna persona o animal, ni ganado lanar o vacuno, probará alimento alguno. Ni tampoco pasará ni beberá agua. Al contrario, el rey ordena que toda persona, junto con sus animales, haga duelo y clame a Dios con todas sus fuerzas. Ordena a sí mismo que cada uno se convierta de su mal camino y de sus hechos violentos. ¿Quién sabe? Tal vez Dios cambie de parecer y aplaque el ardor de su ira, y no perezcamos. Al ver Dios lo que hicieron, es decir, que se habían convertido de su mal camino, cambió de parecer y no llevó a cabo la destrucción que les había anunciado. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Nicole. You all may be seated. And I just want to say, buenos días. And that is the extent of my Spanish this morning. Uh, but go ahead and turn to Jonah chapter 3, where we're going to be sitting this morning. And we get to look at and dive into a really interesting and intriguing story about a people responding to a message from God with fasting, prayer, and repentance. Throughout church history, if you actually study this practice of fasting and prayer, intentionally looking for it both in the infallible word of God and throughout church history, you'll find that many people partook in this practice as a means to see God move in power. There's one instance in particular that has stood out to me uh, that came during World War II in 1940 when a group of soldiers were trapped in a small town called Dunkirk. Christopher Nolan did a movie on this. It's a fantastic movie. And he tells this story about a large mass group of allied forces trapped by Nazi forces, 1,800 German tanks and 300 Stuka dive bombers, trapped and basically it looks like they are about to get obliterated. And if they were to get obliterated, this was surely the end of the war. And so for them, as the messages started to communicate back to England and the prime minister heard about this, they basically were thinking that the war was over. And as all of this was unfolding, the king of England heard about this and decided to kind of throw a Hail Mary effort and call a nationwide fast. Tens of thousands of people responded to this call, coming together in unity, fasting and praying for this this large group of soldiers who were stuck in Dunkirk, basically waiting their death. 
And from this nation praying and fasting, four things happened. The generation of 1940 back then called, became, uh, became to call this the four miracles of Dunkirk. The first thing that happened is that against all advice from his generals, Hitler decided to stop his forces 10 miles outside of Dunkirk and sit there stationary, not moving for three whole days. Historians still have no idea what kind of strategic move this was to completely freeze your forces when they knew, looking back, and when generals knew and were trying to get Hitler to do, that if he would just attack, they would be wiped out. The second thing that happened was that rain, clouds, wind blew in this fog that covered just the town of Dunkirk so thick so that they could not, the Nazi forces could not see the Allied troops and what they were doing. And then the third thing that happened was that the English Channel, which is notorious for being extremely choppy and basically impassable if you don't have the kind, right kind of boat or if you, don't, uh, if you aren't equipped to kind of traverse those types of waters, became so still that one of the people driving boats described it as bathwater. And then the fourth thing that happened is that 338,000 soldiers made it safely across the English Channel in the midst of this seemingly hopeless situation. And from this moment was kind of the turning point for the war that these soldiers survived because if they would have been obliterated, there just wouldn't have that many forces to be able to take on Hitler and his army. Now we can look at this story like Christopher Nolan did and just chalk all that up to coincidence and not really talk about it. Or... We can look at details surrounding this event and come to a conclusion that in some mysterious way, when a nation decided to fast and pray, turning to the God who controls the weather, the earth, and all the people in it, he responded in power with a miracle. And what you find is that story after story throughout history and both in the Bible, Christians have fasted and prayed in response to what was happening around them, only to see God move in grace and power. And this is what's happening here in Jonah chapter 3. In our passage this morning, we see the people of Nineveh finally receive this message from God, from Jonah, and they respond with fasting, prayer, and repentance, calling out to God with their whole might that he would spare them and not destroy them. It's Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. He says, starting there with me, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. A couple of things to note is that up until this point in chapter 3, this has been a pretty rocky and rough start for the person of Jonah, right? He gets a clear message from God. He doesn't have to do any ifs, ands, or buts about it. He doesn't have to figure out, was that God's voice or was that just the food that I ate the previous day? It's the clear voice of God to him telling him to do something with a clear message of how he should communicate it. And instead of obeying God, he runs the opposite direction to a point where he finds himself in the middle of a physical storm on a boat where then these passengers and the sailors decide to draw sticks and they point to Jonah and say, dude, it looks like you're jumping overboard. And Jonah says, fine. He jumps over into waters thinking he's going to die. And then Jonah sent, or then God sends this massive fish to swallow Jonah for three days where he's confined and restricted. For God was protecting Jonah as well as preparing him for preparing him to return back to the place where he was called. 
And here we find in chapter 3 at the start of it, Jonah, back where all things began. And the differences, though, here are are, are important to note. Because if you look at Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, and Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, you're going to see that they start out very similarly. And the author is trying to signify this, and he's emphasizing this, that the book of Jonah is almost restarting. The story of Jonah is almost restarting, but this time, without all the fighting, running, and being stuck in a fish for three days, showing that in all of this uh, mishigas that Jonah went through, he actually maybe learned something, and that is that if God commands us to do something, we should simply obey. In chapter 3, we don't even get to see how Jonah feels as we did in chapter 1. We don't get to see a conversation between Jonah and God as we did in chapter 2. We don't get to see what Jonah thinks about this message or even what the message is, unlike the first two chapters. And all of this is purposeful because what the author is trying to convey after all of these circumstances and instances that Jonah went through is that when God speaks, we should obey. And last week, Mark kind of touched on this. If you haven't had a chance to watch this sermon, I I really encourage you to just go watch all of the series if you haven't been uh, with us. And Mark talked about this idea that ultimate trust in God leads to unconditional surrender to God. And this is an important point for us to remember in these 10 verses, as we look at the first couple of verses that set up the context of all of this, that if we really trust God, we are going to obey God without needing an explanation. It's not that wanting an explanation from God is wrong or that asking God why do you want me to do this is a wrong thing. It's just that in the story of Jonah, we see that an explanation should not be necessary for our immediate obedience to God. And so here we find Jonah understanding this, simply obeying God and finally taking the message to the people of Nineveh in Jonah chapter three, verse four, saying, Jonah began to go into the city, a city that was three days journey, remember, and going one day's journey, he called out. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Straight into the point, he doesn't really waste any time beating around the bush. He just says, you're going to be destroyed. It's going to happen in a certain amount of time. You're going to do some, you need to do something about it. And it's important to note a couple of things. The first is that this city was three days in journey, basically just showing that this was a massive city. It was a city of a great importance to this day and age. And with big cities like this, it was custom for ambassadors or prophets, in our case like Jonah, to travel two days into the heart of the city and then talk to and communicate this message that he had to the kings and the high officials of the court. But here we find an urgency in Jonah where he doesn't follow what was customary and he starts to proclaim this message from God to the outermost parts of this city, to the poor and common folk most likely. He doesn't wait to go to the king so that the king can then proclaim this message to his people. Jonah starts urgently proclaiming this message on day one. And the thing that we see is that before Jonah can even make it into the heart of the city, the people of Nineveh respond in such a radical way that they beat Jonah to spreading and communicating this message. I find it ironic that after all that Jonah has gone through to come back to this place to fulfill what God has called him to do, God uses an evil people to communicate this message to the rest of Nineveh and to the king of Nineveh. And what we find is that when they hear this message from Jonah, not only do they start spreading it, but they respond with fasting and prayer. It's Jonah chapter 3, verse 5. It says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The people's response, as has been to drastic situations throughout, situ- throughout history for Christians, was to fast and pray 
and call out to God. And for then these six verses, we see a shift from Jonah and his person onto these people and their response to God. And so if we want to really understand what this text means for us this morning, we have to first look at this practice of fasting and prayer. Because in today's day and age in the Western world, this idea of fasting has been almost lost outside of the health fads that have been popping up again for intermittent fasting where we see them doing those things or we just think that it's for the Eastern religions or the radically religious people. And there's this tendency when we're talking about disciplines in our faith that we see throughout scripture like fasting for us to check out because we think that it was just for the people in the Bible or that it's reserved for only select serious and dare we might even say weird Christians who want to do something like this. But I like how Arthur Wallace warns us of viewing scripture and reading scripture in this way where we check out when we get to certain ideas. He says, when our minds are conditioned by prejudice or paralyzed by traditional views, we may face a truth in scripture again and again without its ever touching us. And this really is what's happening across the board, not just, with, uh, not just with fasting and disciplines, but with truths that we are to be living by and ways in which God has commanded us to live. We view them with such a prejudiced viewpoint or a traditional view that we miss the truth that the scripture is actually trying to communicate to us. And so if we really want to understand Jonah chapter 3 here today, how it, not only how it teaches us more about the character and nature of God, but also how it can apply to us practically today in the world that we live in, in the country that we're living in, in the homes that we are living in, we have to humbly approach this text and see and understand what fasting is, why people would ever even subject themselves to something like that, and then how we can safely, thoughtfully, and prayerfully practice it. So let's start with what fasting is. Fasting is, in its biblical definition, fasting it means to not eat food in order to experience more of God's presence. It's not just the practice of not eating food. Uh, you can't just go on a health diet or, or not eat and slap holiness onto it. But it is a specific purpose of not eating food for the sake of encountering and experiencing more of God's tangible presence. Fasting means simply to not eat food. Uh, let me explain it this way. If you were about to have a colonoscopy and you went to your doctor and they said, okay, you've got to fast for 24 hours and you know, evacuate your body in such a way to where you can come back in and we can do this procedure to you. And you went home and you said, you know what? I'm going to fast from TV for 24 hours, just like the doctor told me to. So you sit there, you fast from TV, you come back the next day, you go in the doctor's office and he's doing the eval to make sure they can proceed. And he goes, dude, what, what are you doing? You're supposed to fast. And you said, well, I did. I fasted from TV. He would look at you like you were crazy because we understand and we have to come to this understanding that when the Bible talks about fasting, when we see over a hundred accounts in scripture of a people, a person, or a nation fasting, it does not mean that this people was fasting from their carpentry or they were fasting from squishing grapes to make wine. They were fasting from food in some way, shape, or form. And there's levels to fast. We see partial fasts, like in the book of Daniel, where he decides just to eat vegetable and drink water instead of eating the rich foods that the king had said that he needed to eat. Uh, we see normal fasts, what we would call normal fasts in scripture, where some people would not eat food but continue to drink water, like Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. And then we see occasions like this, rare occasions where people commit to an absolute fast, where they commit themselves to not eating anything or drinking anything for a specific period of time. And this, what we see throughout 
fasting as a whole, in all of its different levels and forms, was extremely common throughout the Old Testament. Again, over a hundred accounts in Scripture. In fact, up to the late 1500s, early believers made fasting, over 50% of early believers made fasting a regular rhythm and response to their faith life. But in today's day and age, it has become lost on us, which is interesting because it's something that Jesus seemed to assume that you and I would be doing as followers of Jesus. Matthew 6, 16 through 18, Jesus says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, Anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus teaches on fasting multiple times. Like in Mark 2, he also is explaining to the Pharisees why his disciples don't fast. And he says, when the bridegroom is with you, you will not fast. But when the bridegroom leaves, when I leave, then my disciples will fast. There is this assumption by Jesus that those who call him Lord and Savior, that those who are following him will pick up this practice and invitation to fast for the sake of experiencing him more. Grammar is very important in scripture. It doesn't say if you fast. It says when you fast. And it's important to note that he does not command them to fast. Nowhere in scripture will you find explicitly stated that we have to fast as believers. But this is an invitation from Jesus at its core level for us to experience more of him. At the end of the day, this is what fasting as Christians separates us from all of the health fads and everything else is that we're not fasting simply as from self-denial to food. Well, that's a part of it, but we are fasting. We are not eating at certain times in the day. We, We fast simply to experience more of God. It's a practice of replacement, replacing physical food with the bread of life. And it's an invitation from Jesus not to less of something, but more of someone. This is why fasting was such a regular rhythm and response. And this is why this is something that the Ninevites do, because these people throughout church history have understood and have personal experiences of and have stories like Jonah that they take seriously that showed that fasting gives a mysterious and a miraculous power to our prayers When we are genuinely seeking God, there is a great mystery surrounding fasting. And I say that because if you look at every account in the Old Testament where a people or nation fasted, there is not a single time in scripture in the Old Testament that God does not respond with something miraculous. And if you really start to do a deep dive into fasting throughout scripture, you will find something really odd. And that is God seems to respond powerfully to people who are fasting and praying in such a way. It almost starts to feel like a cheat code to get God to do what you want him to do. Whether it's a story of Esther, Daniel, Jonah, Jesus praying and fasting on mountaintops, coming off and performing miracles, and then saying, greater things are you going to do? Or maybe it's Paul and Barnabas in the book of Acts as they fast and pray to prepare for their ministry. And from this act of preparation, you see great accounts of miracles and healing the sick and the lame and the gospel exploding. Whether it's the account of Moses fasting for 40 days, no food and water for 40 days on the mount, talking to God in Exodus 34, Nehemiah, Joel, story after story, we find a great mysterious power in this act of fasting and praying when done together that John Mark Comer describes 
causes a chemical reaction in the spiritual realm that moves the presence of God in power. Story after story, we see that God moves in power to this. When a people do this, I don't know about you all, but I want to see this kind of power in my own life. I read stories like this, and I start to have this deep craving to experience and encounter the tangible presence of God in these ways. And if you read enough scripture and you look enough for these stories in scripture, not just stories or history, but the infallible word of God, and we see the power that was behind the prayers and practices of the prophets, priests, disciples, and evil people like Nineveh, who didn't even call Yahweh their own God, it should force us, as it forced me, to step back, look at my faith, and ask, is this kind of power evident in my faith? Is this kind of power evident in my prayers If you know me, you know I love to read, and I've been on this deep dive journey of formation over the last couple of years, just reading as many books as I possibly can about it and seeking in Scripture what Jesus did, what disciples did that we can pick up as practices and patterns and rhythms in our daily life to become more whole, to be made more into the image of Christ. And as I've learned a lot in all of this, and as I've been setting up practices in my day-to-day life, they were really great, but there was one thing missing in all of them as I took an honest look at my life, and that was that the power of God was missing in the practices of Jesus. We can live like a Christian lives. We can do what a Christian is supposed to do. We can go to church every single Sunday. You can read your Bible faithfully every single morning. You can craft great prayers to God. You can even share the gospel and love others to the best of your ability. But if the presence of God is not present, you will have no power. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 warns us of this, saying, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Listen to this. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. We can live in such a way where we appear godly, but our heart is still festering with sin and ungodliness. We can do so much. We can imitate a lot in the Christian faith. I mean, I know a lot, and I'm sure you guys know some non-believers in your life who seem super nice. They're super kind. They love really well. But the one thing that non-believers cannot replicate, the one thing that we cannot replicate just in practices is the power of God that comes from simply being in the presence of God. There is no power in the practices of Jesus if the presence of God is not there. Fasting by itself is not some magic magic formula to get God to do what we want him to do. That's not why Jesus invites us into this practice. It's not why the Ninevites respond in such a way or why we would ever even think about voluntarily subjecting ourselves to not eating a guy's barbecue ranch pizza, a mama pen's country fried steaks smothered in both brown and white gravy with cornbread and biscuits, Uh, why we would subject ourselves to not eating a corner bagel, bacon, egg, and cheese with a grilled chocolate chip muffin or double JC's bird dog plate with jalapeno ranch and honey mustard. Okay, that's not why we would subject ourselves to that. I'm hungry. 
And we want to go to mom. No, we don't want to go to mom pens. We fast, not to do, uh, not to get God to do what we want Him to do. We fast to consecrate ourselves to God, so that then we can become participants in the saving work of God. Fasting is a a way to consecrate our whole selves to God in such a way that we then become participants in the saving and redemptive work of Jesus. Go back to our passage, Jonah 3, chapter, uh, Jonah chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. He says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the degree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This is a radical response for an evil and sinful nation to do. This is a nation who doesn't even believe in this God specifically. Nineveh was polytheist. If somebody the next day came and said, hey, Zeus is going to destroy you, they might react in this same way. Here the word used for God throughout this passage is Elohim, not Yahweh. And what Elohim shows us is that these people are just referring to this God as another God that might destroy them. And yet even though they don't even personally know this God, they don't even know his heart and character, they don't know anything about him other than the fact that he's coming to them and he has said that you are about to be destroyed by me and you need to turn and repent, they react like this they consecrate themselves to them they turn with their whole might towards him and in turn they become participants of the saving work of god so a word on both of these consecration and participation the first consecration romans 12 1 says i appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of god to present your bodies underline bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god which is your spiritual worship. This is the essence of consecration. It is a giving of our whole self to God for the purposes of God. The Greek word that Paul uses here for bodies is soma. Everyone say soma. And this word means the entirety of your being. He's pointing to the fact that we have been made in the image of God. And our God, we believe, exists three in one and one in three. And being made in his image means that we exist as what some people have called tripart being, mind, body, and spirit. So that at all times, we are all of these things. So that you don't just have a body, but you are a body. The Gnostics tried to separate that and make it spiritual and worldly and make spiritual be this whole separate realm. And then everything that was worldly, including your body, was bad and evil. But to the person of God as he's created us, he has created us so that we are integrated into all beings so that we are simultaneously existing as mind, body, and spirit. So that you don't just have a body, but you are a body that will one day be resurrected when Jesus comes in glory. You don't just have a soul that's been saved, but you are a soul that is saved for all of eternity. It's this idea that Paul is speaking to, that we are to turn our whole self, not just one aspect of ourself, to God. To give God our body, to give God our mind, to give God our spirit, to give God what we want and what we think about and what we do with our day-to-day life. To be a living sacrifice for God, 
to be used by God. Jeremiah 29, 13 speaks to this. He says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This is why fasting is an integral practice for us. It's why people fasted for so many years because they understood that this idea, an aspect of fasting, involves our whole being. It doesn't just involve one aspect of us, but it gets our body into our pursuit of God. Andrew Murray says this about it. He says, fasting helps to express, to deepen, and to confirm the resolution that we are ready to sacrifice anything, to sacrifice ourselves to attain what we seek for the kingdom of God. Fasting shows God how serious we are about wanting him. It's us radically saying, all that I am and all that I have is yours, God, even down to what I eat and when I eat it. And this is the kind of devotion that God is after. He's after the kind of devotion that radically changes every single minute aspect of how we live. A life that is completely and wholly and totally devoted to him. So when you wake up, the first thing you're thinking about is, God, how can I best serve you today? When you leave the door, the first thing you're thinking about is, God, create divine interruptions in my life so that I can preach your gospel. So that when you're at work, you can be constantly praying for the people in the cubicles next to you, or stocking shelves next to you, or wherever your job may be. It is a complete devotion to the ways of God to be used for the purposes of God. And this is the call that each of us have. And I know that if we're being honest, I'll, I'll be the person to be honest up here. Because first service didn't want to be honest with me. They just let me almost get struck by lightning by myself. But if we are going to be honest, sometimes we look at Christians who are taking this really seriously. They wake up at 4 a.m. and they spend two hours in prayer. Or they're reading their Bible late at night because they just want to be saturated in the word of God. Or you cannot get them to talk about anything other than Jesus because they are just so excited about what he has done. And they just cannot help but tell every single person about this. We look at them sometimes, I'll be honest, and we go, they are a little too Christian. Is that just me? Anybody else just going to join in? Thank you. Hey, we got one. Thank you. That's better than first ever just left me up here to die, basically. We find this kind of devotion to God abnormal, weird, or even out there. But the interesting thing is we don't view that kind of devotion to the things of this world with the same kind of judgment. To the person who trains four hours a day for a marathon, we may think, not for me, but we admire their work ethic. For the people who work 60 to 80 hours a week and end the year without having taken any vacation days, we view that as a badge of honor in our society. Or for the people who watch, in some godforsaken way, all 162 MLB baseball games a year, spending extra money on TV passes and studying lineups, and man, they could tell you exactly why that 25th pitcher on that team should be pitching that day. It's not that devotion to these things are wrong. I love the NBA. I watch it like a soap opera. I can't wait to see Damian Lillard go to the San Antonio Spurs. I love Michigan football. I will watch transfers. I'll watch recruiting classes. I'll make sure I'm up to date on the latest, craziest thing that Harbaugh said so that I can respond to the Ohio State fans who are going to make fun of me for it. And a bunch of other pointless stuff that doesn't really matter, and yet I spend my time on and I devote my time to. But oftentimes, we have this kind of devotion to the things of this world, but not this kind of devotion to the ways of God. In fact, we view this devotion to work, to family, to hobbies as normal, but devotion to the ways and practices of Jesus as abnormal 
and reserved for the pastors and select few who would call themselves radicals. God is calling each of you in the room, each of us in the room, no matter your age, no matter your profession, no matter how much time you think you have or you think you don't have, no matter where you are in your faith journey, he is calling you to be totally and completely consecrated to him in this way. You don't have to read your Bible every single morning. You don't have to pray every single second of every single day. You don't even have to come to church every single day in order for God to love you or in order for God to even save you. That's the grace of God. It's belief in him. It's the grace and finished work of Jesus on the cross that saves us, not the works that we do. But if you want to be used by God, then it requires this kind of consecration. God's not going to love you less or save you less if you don't do these things, but he will use you less. When we consecrate our whole self to him, we actually get to, by the grace of God and the power of the spirit in us, participate in the redemptive and saving work of Jesus. This is what the people of Nineveh did. They didn't eat drink. They didn't drink or eat. They didn't drink water or eat food. They changed what they wore to show their humility. They made their animals, their poor animals, fast. They had no idea what was happening. They stopped doing what was evil, even though in their eyes, they most likely didn't even view it as evil. The people of Nineveh were humbly turning with their whole being and their whole strength to God in repentance. And this was the way in which they participated in the saving work of God. Our consecration is for our participation. And if an evil people like Nineveh, who don't even know God, who didn't even have scriptures about God, turn to God in this way, how much more should we respond to God in such a radically devoted way when we have all of this, when you're sitting in a pew in a church where we're singing about the promises of God, how much more can we trust and obey him and how much more should we respond in obedience than an evil people like Nineveh who didn't even know who this God was? When we fast and pray, we become participants, not because we're doing anything, but because we are radically calling on the God who can do everything. I love how Robert Mulholland explains this way of practices, specifically like fasting. He says they are us offering ourselves to God in hopes that he will respond in grace and power through the channels we have created in our soul. Friends, it's not the practice that brings the power. It is the heart of the person who is practicing it that brings the God who has all of the power. God wasn't waiting for the people to start fasting and praying for him to move. He was waiting for them to come to him humbly in genuine repentance, saying, this is all that I have, would you spare us? And then he moved. This is what we are called to do today, to consecrate ourselves, to devote ourselves to him, and to do these things, to say, God, this is my offering, as crappy and imperfect as it is, would you come, Holy Spirit? Would you move, Almighty God? Would you save my friends or my family? Would you show grace and mercy to this country and nation? Would you you deliver us. And the promise that we have in scripture from the book of Jonah and through many other stories is that when we repent, God always relents. Jonah chapter three, verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, 
God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The word used here, relented, also means repented or changed his mind. It's a Hebrew word that's really hard to, uh, to translate. And what we think when we see something like this, that God changed his mind, is that God broke his word, and in turn that means that he broke his character, so something is now wrong in this story. But in fact, if we know this story and we know scripture, this is not God breaking his character. This is God staying true to his character. Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8, God says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. The exact words here in Jonah chapter 3.10 is when God saw it it and how they turned from their evil way. A direct pointing to Jeremiah 18 shows us that it's not that God's character was broken when he changed his mind or when he relented. It's that he was staying true to who he was and who he has always been. And that is a God who is willing to forgive any person, any people, so long as there is genuine repentance. This is what separates us from the universalists. We're not saying that God forgives everyone, but we are saying that God will forgive anyone who is willing to come to him humbly and say, I repent of everything that I've done and I turn my whole life, I devote my whole person to you for your works. This is the practice of fasting. It is our participation. It is a way for us to participate by consecration. It's the way we show God with our whole being that we're devoted to him. It's a means to bring the presence of God into a situation and watch the power of God reshape the future. It's not that God needs us in order to do this. We find in Jonah chapter one and two, God will do what God wills, whether or not his people are willing to participate in those things. But if we wanna be a people that God doesn't just love, And that God doesn't just save, both pretty great things by themselves. But if we want to be a people that God uses, then this morning, we have to make a decision to consecrate our whole self to him. There's none of this try out Jesus for a week and see how he fits. None of this foot in, foot out. It is a consecrate yourself. Devote yourself. Turn to him completely. If we want to be a people who see God move in power in our time, in our communities around us, in the families that members that are lost and the friends that we love dearly that just don't know Jesus or in the evil things that are happening in today's day and age like abortion or sex trafficking or slavery or any other things that are still happening in the world as a whole. It's not just about being a praying people or a fasting people. We must ironically be like the self-indulgent, sinful, wicked people of Nineveh who heard this message from God, believed, and responded with fasting, prayer, and repentance. I love this story of Jonah. It is such a beautiful story of God's grace. It's a story that shows us so much about God's character. And the story of Jonah has so many imperfect reflections of the perfect story we find of Jesus. Jonah's given a message 
to preach to a sinful and evil city. Jesus comes with a message to preach to an evil and lost world. Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days before this message from God came to fruition. Jesus was in the grave for three days before the final work of God was completed and accomplished through his resurrection. The Ninevites' response to this message was belief and repentance. And our response, as Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. But Jonah is an imperfect reflection of a perfect story And his message only changed Nineveh's temporary judgment. 630-something BC, Nineveh is wiped out because they didn't fully change, but they did change one temporary moment. But we have this fulfilling and complete message from Jesus that doesn't just change our temporary situation, and oftentimes it doesn't change our temporary situation, but it changes us on the inside. So that from this message and our belief in it and repentance to him, we would be forever changed, not just for one moment, but for eternity. We don't have to fast. We don't have to pray. Our response is simply to humbly and totally repent and believe. So this morning I realize that there are people in this room this morning that are at different stages of both non-faith and faith journeys So I want to speak to each of you individually for a moment. The first, for those of you who are not believers, those of you who do not know Jesus personally and intimately, those of you who have not responded to Jesus with this genuine repentance saying, all that I am and all that I have is yours. His message is simple. Believe God like these Ninevites did and respond with radical repentance and devotion. For those of you who have believed but you are struggling to give him all of yourself. You've given him your spirit, but your body is still yours. You've given him your mind, but you still want control of your children or your finances or your future. The invitation is simple. Seek me with your whole heart, with what you want, desire me more than any other thing, with what you think about, think about me more than you think about anything else, and with what you do. And what you will find is a God who is to be enjoyed more deeply, more fully than any other thing in this world. Seek him with all your heart and you will find him. And then for those of you who have been following Jesus and you are committed to this idea of consecration as imperfectly as you're doing it, you are still doing it with all of the power of the spirit in you and with all the might of your will and who want to see a move of power in your families, in your context, in communities, in this nation, or in this world, his practice is clear. Fast and pray. This is not something that's just reserved for Bible times or for pastors or for uber-spiritual people. This is something that hundreds of thousands of millions of believers have done generation after generation as a way to call upon God for the people that God has placed on their heart, for the place that God has placed on their heart and watch him move in power. I love Isaiah 58, six through 12. We end with this this morning. This is God explaining his chosen fast. What happens when a people fast the way that he has 
called us to with the parameters around it thoughtfully and prayerfully? What happens when a people turn to him in this way? I'm reading from the message Bible just for the sake of understanding, but ESV is gonna be on there. So again, just pay attention to the screen as well as the words. Isaiah 58, six through 12. God says, this is the kind of fast day I'm after to break the chains of injustice, get rid of exploitation in the workplace, free the oppressed and cancel debts. What I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad, being available to your own families. Do this and the lights will turn on and your lives will turn around at once. Your righteousness will pave your way. The God of glory will secure your passage. And then when you pray, God will answer. You'll call out for help and I'll say, here I am. If you get rid of unfair practices, quit blaming victims, quit gossiping about other people's sins. If you're generous with the hungry and start giving yourself to the down and out, your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight. I will always show you where to go. I'll give you a full life in the emptiness of places, firm muscles and strong bones. You'll be like a well-watered garden, a gurgling spring that never runs dry. You'll use the old rubble of past lives to build anew, rebuild the foundations from out of your past. You'll be known in this world as those who can fix anything, restore old ruins, rebuild and renovate, and make the community livable again. Not because any of us are doing anything, but because we are radically calling to the God who can do everything. God does not want a people following after him to just sit on their hands in their salvation. He is calling this morning for a people who are called by, them, by, by his name to humble themselves in such a way as they fast, pray, and seek his face, turning from our evil ways and towards him, and a people who would humbly and hopefully watch him heal their land. I cannot emphasize how much time and time again in scripture when a people fast and pray and watch with a humble and hopeful heart, God moves in power. God will come when we call on him. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray this morning to come, to fill this room in such a way where those who don't know you come to know you. For those who are blind and can't hear can finally see and truly hear. For those who can't taste or smell your sweet aromas and they just don't know how satisfying you are, that you would fill them with your presence in such a way where they see how satisfying you are. That you are so satisfying that we'd be willing to give up our lives just to experience and enjoy more of you. I pray for hearts to be awakened and to come alive. I pray for those, uh, for our arms to be strengthened so that we can fulfill the will and call that you've placed in our life, for our hands to be open to receive what you have for us, for our guts to trust your speaking voice, for our legs to have the strength to run this race with you with all endurance.
and for our feet to be rooted on a firm foundation that is you and your salvation. God, this morning, move in power. Respond to the cries of your people in such a way where we get to encounter, experience, and claim evidence of you moving. We seek these things with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul. For your glory and your kingdom, we humbly pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's teaching. We hope you have a great week.